continuing on in, in looking at the life of, of the Apostle Paul. What a, an example of, uh, of a faithful and committed servant Paul has been throughout. And now, especially as we see the life of Paul in, in the midst of the struggles and trials of going, of going through Jerusalem to Caesarea and now on the brink of, of uh, heading toward Rome. Still, so many lessons to learn. Today we want to begin with Acts chapter 26. And uh, before we begin, I, I want to ask you all the question. Are you an almost Christian or are you an altogether Christian? Now really, you can only be one or the other. You're either an almost Christian or you're an altogether Christian. Well, keep that thought in mind as we go through our study this morning. In Acts 26, verse 1, just to give you a little bit of a preview of what's been going on, I already mentioned how Paul has, has been taken from uh, Jerusalem after the struggles that he had even in the church uh, there and, and, and then in the temple with, with his Jewish brethren who rioted when they saw him, allowed him to speak until he mentions the word Gentiles and then they riot again. And eventually the Romans take him, arrest him, and nearly beat him, but uh, eventually send him off to be judged in Caesarea. The Jews have sought to kill him. But God has kept his hand upon, upon Paul. Paul makes it, makes it to, to Caesarea, speaks before Felix, the governor of that time. Felix makes no decision, keeps Paul in prison for two years. At that time, Felix is, take, is uh, replaced by Festus, and Festus now wants to give Paul a, a, a just trial. So he invites King Agrippa and Bernice to come to Caesarea and uh, hear his case. And that's where we are at this point in time. Festus has this great pomp and splendor and uh, ceremony entrance uh, of all of these dignitaries into the courts there in Caesarea. And in the midst of all of that, the Apostle Paul comes in chains before all of these dignitaries. Eventually, in verse 1, as we're told, Agrippa says to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me first, uh, from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused 
by the Jews. Shall we pray? Father, we ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit today and this morning. We ask that you will open our eyes and our hearts, our minds and our ears, Lord, to, to your heart's desires for us. As we take the opportunity, Lord, to read and to study this passage, this chapter. Lord, there are things that you would have us to know about ourselves that we desperately need to know and then to act upon. And those things, Father, that we can apply, may we be able uh, by your Spirit to apply them. That we may be more than just an almost Christian, but that we may certainly be an altogether Christian, altogether in the things that pertain to Jesus Christ our Lord. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If we knew of any one goal that the Apostle Paul had for himself in the ministry, it would be seeing himself as an ambassador representing Jesus Christ to the world and pleading with people to be reconciled with God. And I I use the word pleading here purposely. There is a pleading that needs to take place when we tell people about Jesus. An imploring, uh, using Bible terminology, imploring, begging, pleading. And this is something, be reconciled to God. This is the message that we are to plead uh, before people. We know this from from what uh, Paul wrote to to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. To reconcile means to buy back and to take back. So God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, and here's what we are to plead before men. We implore you, we beg you, we plead with you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul knew this from the very beginning of his walk. He knew that this was what he was called to do. It was from the very beginning of his walk with Jesus in Damascus. When Ananias would tell him in Acts, well actually Paul is is giving us the account in Acts 22 verse 15. But he says, this is what Ananias said to him, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. So to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ is to be a witness for Jesus Christ, and this is something that Paul knew he had to be. It didn't matter what the circumstances or the situations were. Paul saw himself as an ambassador for Christ. Now listen to this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Now, if you know about the book of Ephesians, you know that this is called a prison epistle. It was an epistle written by Paul in prison. And he says in verses 19 and 20 of Ephesians 6, And for me, that uh, he's asking for prayer, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. So he was an ambassador, even though he was chained, As a prisoner, he was still an ambassador. His mouth wasn't chained. His tongue wasn't chained. He was there to preach the gospel. So he was an ambassador in chains, and he says that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 
You know, Paul is not really so much speaking about himself as he is showing us how we are to speak as ambassadors for Christ as well. He says in Philippians chapter 121, and this is something that an ambassador for Christ needs to know. Paul says, for me, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That means to, for me to live is Christ. As long as I have breath, I live for Christ. As long as I have breath, I'm an ambassador for Christ. But when the Lord takes me, then that's gain for me because I'll be with Him. And the same thought comes to mind when in Acts 21, verse 13, he, he tells those who are weeping over his leaving, he says, Why do you mean, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I am ready to give my life for Jesus Christ. That is what an ambassador is. He represents Jesus to the very end. And we find Paul once again in chains, in the midst of the pomp and the splendor of the Roman court in Caesarea, as Festus the governor hosts King Agrippa and his wife Bernice, that the, the king might judge for himself the charges made against the apostle, and why he appealed to Rome for legal judgment. Paul, having already given account of his conversion uh, in Hebrew to his Jewish audience in Jerusalem, and here gives his conversion account to the Gentiles, he speaks directly to King Agrippa and would also want to reach Festus, who was Roman, and his court as well with the gospel message. And we see again that, that passion and that desire of the Apostle Paul to address his audience and everyone in his audience. And it's important to note that in Philippians 3, by the way, you know, we have uh, actually three accounts in the book of Acts of Paul's conversion. First is the historic conversion in Acts chapter 9. Then he recounts it again in Acts 23, and then again here in chapter 26. But it's important to note that he writes his conversion to some extent uh, in his letters. Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. And here's his, here's his uh, testimony. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's what he was before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. But notice verse 7, But what things were gained to me, to my Jewish religion, to my Jewish understanding, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. This is his testimony. And he gives it again to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. He writes, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now this is what he says about himself. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern 
to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Why am I, I, I recounting these particular points of his, of his conversion experience in his testimony? Because first of all, the point is to show that Paul was never an almost Christian. Paul was never an almost Christian. Actually, he wasn't, he wasn't an almost anything, as his testimony before Festus and Agrippa shows. I mean, he wasn't, a, he wasn't even an almost Jew. He was an altogether Jew. That's what his testimony is saying. So let's consider here the first seven verses of our text again. By the way, there's another lesson from his testimony. It's saying how important our testimony is when we tell people about Jesus. What Christ has done for us. That has to be important. That we understand that that change in our life can be an effect upon the lives of other people. What happened to you? What, what changed you? I can tell you. It was Jesus Christ. It's our testimony. So here in verses 1-7, through seven, let's go through it again. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. The stretching out of the hand was, was the acknowledgement that he was given the opportunity to speak. And now he speaks before this august crowd. And he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Now, Paul is not flattering King Agrippa. Paul is just stating fact. Notice he goes on and he says, Therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. He said, I, I, I have been scrutinized from the time I was a, a, a youth. Throughout all my life, all the Jews know me. They know about me. They know what I was. He says, they knew me from the first, verse 5, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand in him judge for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Paul knew Agrippa's acquaintance with the Jewish religion, and so it was his last opportunity, in fact, to reach Israel with statements that Agrippa would have been able to understand. Remember that King Agrippa was part Jewish. One statement stands out here in verse 5. Paul uses actually a double superlative, and, and you really see it more in the King James Version, because there, Paul says, uh, he says, that according to the most straightest sect of our religion, most straightest, or the most strictest sect, and, and that's really a double superlative, because if you just use the word strictest, that's, you know, that's a strong statement, but he says the most strictest, the most straightest sect of our religion. He says that according to the straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. 
And he's using this double superlative here to stress the fact that no man was ever more convinced that Judaism was God's final word to all of mankind than Saul of Tarsus was. In other words, Paul believed, it in it, Paul believed in it with all of his heart. Paul believed in it in all of his heart. He lived it, in other words. He lived, he says, a Pharisee. That is saying, I live by the strictest sect of our religion. I live by it. I didn't just act it. I didn't just want to be it. You know, we have wannabes today that want to be this and want to be that. He says, I wasn't a wannabe. I was a Pharisee. I lived a Pharisee. And they knew it. And he was not simply a Jew by profession. He wasn't an almost Jew. Many today call themselves Jews, yet aren't careful at all to follow or observe the customs or the ordinances of the Jewish faith. But you know what? That can be said of those who call themselves Christians but do not live according to God's Word. People call themselves Christians, but they, don't, they never open a Bible, or they don't even know what the Scriptures say about how we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that God has given us as believers in Jesus Christ. So that's why I pose the question, are we almost Christians or are we altogether Christians? The Pharisees were the most religious and the most conscientious of the Jews. And while we might think that all of them were hypocrites based on Jesus' condemnation of them in Matthew chapter 23, Saul of Tarsus was certainly one Pharisee that lived what he professed. And there were others that lived what they professed. But there was a group that, that Jesus had to confront, a group that came, that he knew that all they were were Pharisees on the outside, but inside they were just dead. As a matter of fact, he said to them, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're whitewashed sepulchers, you're whitewashed tombs. You look so good on the outside, but inside you're just dead men, you're just full of dead men's bones. You blow trumpets so people can see you pray. But inside, you have no fellowship with the God that you profess. But Paul, Paul truly lived the life of a Pharisee. And so he wanted Agrippa to know that he wasn't divorced from the great truths of Judaism. Consider the fact that there is not one truth which God revealed to Moses and the prophets which is denied by Bible-believing Christians. Have you ever thought about that? There's not one truth which God revealed to Moses and the prophets which is denied by Bible-believing Christians. We believe in the unity of the Godhead. That there's one God. But as Christians we go beyond that, right? Because we know one thing. We know, there is a, we know there is a person who is called the Father, and He's God. There's a person called the Son, and He's God. There's a person called the Holy Spirit, and He's God. But we believe in one God, so therefore we believe in the God who is made up of three persons, unique and distinct, and yet one God. So we believe in the Trinity. But the fact of the matter is, to begin with, we still believe in one God. So we have that in common. This is what the Scriptures teach. We believe in the importance of knowing God and walking in obedience to His Word, taught throughout all of the Scriptures, especially the Hebrew Scriptures. 
We believe in the resurrection of the dead and in the final judgment taught in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. We believe in the eternal punishment of people who died in their sins and the everlasting blessedness of the righteous. We believe that because it's in the Hebrew Scriptures. So this is why Paul could say to King Agrippa, they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that I have lived a Pharisee. I have believed every word of the Bible. I have believed every word of the Hebrew Scriptures. So Paul goes on to tell him in verse 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise our twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Now what does Paul mean here? Well, this is what he means... In so many words, he's saying, in effect, I am standing here right now before you in chains simply because I believe with all my heart what every sincere and honest Jew believes. That is what he's telling them. I believe in the resurrection of the dead, but I also believe that Jesus Christ has already been resurrected. I believe in the promised Messiah of Israel, but I believe that Jesus is Messiah and that He died for our sins, that He was raised from the dead and taken to the Father's right hand. So He's telling them, I believe what the Scripture says. And what every sincere and honest Jew should believe. And then Paul said this in verse 8, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? I believe He said this certainly to Agrippa, but He said this so that Festus could hear it. Because you see, Festus, as a Roman, mocked the resurrection. I'll show it to you in just a moment. It's from last week's study. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Verse 8, as I said, is, is, is really spoken by Paul to Festus. Because Festus had ridiculed the thought that Jesus, who was dead, should be alive again. In a statement made by Festus in Acts 25, 19, speaking of what he had heard from the other Jews, he said, well, they had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, he said, who had died, but Paul affirmed to be alive. So there's some ridicule in in the statement that uh, Festus makes. Paul is trying to make sure, hey, Jesus... You can't find him. He's not in the grave. He's arisen. So why would anyone think it incredible that the Lord who created the universe and breathed into man the breath of life should be able to bring back his own blessed son from the dead and any others after death has claimed them? What's so incredible about that? God is able to raise the dead. If he gives life, he's able to give it again. Paul went on to tell Agrippa some of the circumstances of his life before coming to Christ, especially when he says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I I myself thought I must do many things 
in opposition to the name of Jesus is what he's saying. You know, it's interesting, but there's a lot of people doing a lot of that today. There are a lot of people today who think, you know, that they're, you know, that they're sincere about the fact that they need to really come against the church and come against Jesus in the name of Jesus. And, you know, we're heading into a season where so many people are saying, well, we don't want to mention the word Christmas and this and that because Christ is in the word Christmas and blah, 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 and this and that. And some of these people, you know, they, they just feel that they're, they're just sincere in their, in their quest against the name. So I'm sure that there are people today sincerely believing they're doing right in opposing the gospel of the grace of God. But I want you to remember something. That sincerity of belief does not in itself prove anything. The sincerity of belief does not in itself prove anything. You might board a jet plane this afternoon and be absolutely sincere in thinking that it was going to take you to Honolulu. And then you discover that it was going to Seattle. You see, your sincerity of belief did not alter the fact or change anything. You should have realized something had happened because you weren't getting macadamia nuts instead of just regular peanuts. But because you sincerely believed that you were going to Honolulu, didn't change the fact. Saul of Tarsus sincerely believed that Christianity was a delusion that it was just some kind of an illusion or image, you know, that people were believing in. He believed also that Jesus was a deceiver. And that Christians were fanatics that needed to be rooted out of the world. That's how strongly he believed that his own people who were believing all of this should be stopped, made to blaspheme that name, and get back to Judaism. And if not, punish them with arrest, punish them with persecution, or eventually punish them with execution. So he was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. There's a scripture in the book of Isaiah. I know Paul knew this. To the law and to the testimony, Isaiah 8, verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The only problem is they were speaking in this word and confirming all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to show that he himself was indeed the Messiah. He was blinded to that. And so this passage of our text in verses 10 and 11 implies that Paul had been a member of the Sanhedrin. A lot of people wondered if he was, and, and these, these verses pretty much confirm that he was a member of the Jewish High Council, because he participated in their deliberations. As a matter of fact, you look at verse 11, and he says, And I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them. And I, and I, I think of that phrase because it just shows the, the kind of hatred that Paul had for Christianity and for Christ and, and for those who follow him. He says, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. All of this is, is giving some implication, you know, that, that, that Paul was in complete uh, connection with the Sanhedrin and therefore a part of them. But this summed up Paul's whole life. From his childhood to that very moment when Jesus revealed himself to him as the Son of the living God. And so now Paul goes directly to the heart of King Agrippa when he tells him this in verse 12. While thus occupied, 
while I was going about arresting people and persecuting them. As I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission, there's another statement, with authority and commission from the chief priests. At midday, the time when the sun is at the highest point in the sky, almost to the point where there are no shadows anywhere. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. You have to say, that's pretty bright. Shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, that because of the light. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me, Saul? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. We all have studied this already back in chapter 9. But it's worth taking another look. How Paul in his insolence, arrogance as it were, yet being as sincere as he was in, in wanting to eradicate Christianity, is given the opportunity to meet face to face though he cannot see because of the light. But he can hear the voice in his own language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Oh, who are you, Lord? And that's a significant statement that he makes. Who are you, Lord? It showed his fear. He, he finally was down in a position to look up and fear when he had not feared in this manner ever in his life. And the words that came from that light were the words of Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Because if you persecute them, I who am in them, you're persecuting me. Now it doesn't matter how anyone may try to explain this, this conversion experience of the Apostle Paul. It doesn't matter how anyone may try to explain this. It doesn't matter how anyone might try to understand it. One fact remains. Something happened on that road to Damascus that changed Saul of Tarsus completely and forever. Something happened to this man. Some may not want to believe him. But then how are they going to account for the wonderful change in his life and the way that he thought and acted from that moment on? Totally different. No longer angry. No longer hateful. No longer insolent. In one instant, he is a hater of Christ and of Christianity. In the next instant, he's a humble and submitted Christian, willing to lay down his life for the sake of the name of Christ. Because now, he has met him face to face. And he's heard his voice.
He had seen the Messiah of Israel. And struck to the ground and blinded by the light from heaven, shining all around him, and not able to see the glory of that light, Paul heard a voice in his Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, against the goads, the things that are causing him to move in God's direction. Paul had become uneasy, you see. Paul had become uneasy at heart at the, at the bitterness of persecution. Was, was it his remembering the light that he saw on the face of Stephen? Was it at that moment? Was he carrying this in his own heart? Think about it for a moment. Go back to Acts chapter 7. When Stephen, the, the deacon, is, is, has been confronted because of the message that he's given to the Jews. And now they're ready to stone him. And we're told in verse 55, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear what he was saying. And they ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Saul of Tarsus. That was Paul. Paul was there. He saw And he heard what Stephen did. You don't think that stayed with him? Of course it did. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He saw the attitude. He saw the devotion. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And he saw the forgiveness of Jesus in the very face of, Saul, of Stephen. You don't think that he had that image in his mind? And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And he saw Stephen die for the sake of Christ. Everything changed. Everything changed for Paul when the Lord answered his question, Who art thou, Lord? Who art thou? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And here is what conversion truly is. Here is what conversion truly is when a person is brought for the first time ever in his life to look in saving faith upon the face of the Lord Jesus. Not so much physically. None of us have seen Jesus physically. We will one day see Him, for we will have eyes that are able to see Him. But we can see Him with the eyes of faith. We can see Him with the eyes of our heart. We can see Him when we come before His throne of grace to obtain mercy, to find grace for help in time of need, we can see Him. We see Him on the cross. Not on a crucifix, but on the cross that is before us. The cross that was meant for ourselves. The cross that was meant for us. We see Him laid in the tomb, dead for our sins. But we see Him rise again and alive. We saw him when he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We've seen him. 
when we're brought for that first time ever in our lives to look in saving faith upon the face of the Lord Jesus, it changes our lives. And some people have tried to explain this conversion away, or at least the method of the conversion. Many years ago, in the 19th century uh, in Britain, somebody wrote on, on Saul's conversion experience and said in so many words that, uh, that they believed that Paul had been an epileptic, that he had had a fit on the road to Damascus, and he fell to the ground, foamed at the mouth, and after that was a changed man. Boy, where did they get that? They're just trying to explain. They're trying to come up with some idea, you know, or some way of explaining what happened that might make sense to people. How can a light knock you down? How can a light speak and, 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 and say these things? Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, responded to that explanation by saying this. I love this. He said, and I quote, Oh, blessed epilepsy that made such a wonderful change in this man. Would God that all who oppose the name of Jesus Christ might become epileptics in the same sense. Oh, Spurgeon was great. There have been many modern liberal commentators who, who you know, they, they don't much believe in everything in the Scriptures, but they said that Paul had sunstroke when, when traveling to Damascus. And, he, and because of the sunstroke, he fell to the ground and he got converted. <laughs> well, Harry Ironside responded in effect, I've got it up here. It was not sunstroke. It was sunstroke. You see the difference in spelling? He was struck by the Son of God. That was sunstroke. But Jesus went on to talk to Paul. And that's part of his testimony. And he goes on to tell Agrippa, this is what Jesus said, but rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. In other words, I will deliver you through all of the struggles, all of the trials, all of the things that you're going to go through when you meet up with them. I'll deliver you and I'm going to send them to you or I'm going to send you to them. And here's why. To open their eyes, verse 18, to open their eyes in order to, uh, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This, folks, was Paul's ordination and commission into the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In one fell swoop, as it were, He not only is converted to Christ, but commissioned by Christ to be a servant of Christ and given His very purpose from Christ. So today, it continues. You see, the book of Acts hasn't been closed. I'm giving you a little hint of chapter 28 at the very end. There's no amen at the end of chapter 28. Why? Because it isn't over yet. God's still working. God's still bringing people to Christ. So getting back to Paul, 
Jesus did all of these things all at one time. No human hands had anything to do with this. There was no one that led him up to the front. There was no one that prayed with him. It was the Lord who did it all from beginning to end with Paul. It was Jesus himself who commissioned Paul to go forth, to open blind eyes, to turn men from darkness to light, to turn men from the power of Satan to the power of God. And today people still need their eyes open. People still need their eyes open. There are many blind people today who have not seen Jesus. Many people today are open to the things of this world, but they are blind to the things of eternity. And I'm going to be bold in saying that even in the church, there are people in the church today that are open to the things of the world, but blind to the things of eternity. And yet believing that they're okay. Folks, we need to start getting our hearts right with God. We need to start checking our hearts and we need to start answering that question. Am I an almost Christian or am I an altogether Christian? Because you see, we cannot be blind to the things of eternity today. The world, the flesh, and the devil are doing their best to keep our eyes off of the things of eternity and on the things of this world. And it's time that we start turning our eyes back to Christ, back to the Lord, back to the Word of God. Why? Because in the Word of God, there's life and there is light. And it is the light that we need to be able to see the things of eternity. Psalm 119, verse 30, uh, 130, I'm sorry. Psalm 119, verse 130 says, The entrance of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. We need that light each and every day of our lives. We are not to close our Bibles for six days and open them only on one day. We need to open them every day of our lives until Jesus comes again. We need to read God's Word. We need to study God's Word. We need to pour ourselves into God's Word and let God's Word be poured into us to see the things of eternity until Jesus Christ comes again. And I can go on and on, but we've got to finish. In verses 19 and 20 of our text, Paul would tell something of his life after his conversion. He says, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, I got a vision, God spoke to me, and I was obedient to it. But declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works fit, uh, befitting repentance. Now there's a topic that some people will tell you, well, you know, we really don't need to go there. You know, if you just believe that Jesus died for your sins, that's all you need, and then just go on and just live a new Christian life. But wait, that's not what Paul says. He, he preached repentance of sins. That they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Some people today teach that repentance has no place in the message of the gospel of grace. But that's not what Paul says. Repentance is a complete change of attitude and a complete change of direction. It is a complete about face. And to make it even more correct, it is a complete right about face. Right about face. Why? Because we want to be right with God. It is to be that way for every sinner 
who lives in open flagrant sin and for the person who is self-righteous and satisfied by their own goodness. In other words, it covers the whole spectrum. Because there are people today, and, and some of us here can, can say in our testimony, we lived openly and flagrantly in violation of all of God's laws, doing it in ignorance and unbelief. But when we came to Christ, we confessed, we repented, we turned from, our, from that life and turned directly to God, made a complete about face. There will be those who say, I didn't sin like that. I never sinned like that. I, I kind of lived a good life. And I was pretty self-righteous and pretty satisfied. And I did the, all the right things, you know. But then I began to realize, it isn't by the things that I do that salvation comes. Then I realized that even one sin could take me to hell. Therefore, I repented of my sins and confessed Christ. So you see, it covers the whole gamut of, 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 of every kind of life that has ever come into the church. All of us, whether openly flagrant or, or thinking that we live the good life, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All need to come in repentance before Christ. But what a joy it is when Jesus changes us as he changed Paul. You see, in my hand, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling Words from an old, old hymn. In my hand no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So here it is, folks, in very simple language. It is repent or perish, turn or burn. And let me give you one more from the, from the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s. Get right or get left. You don't want to get left. You want to get right. We're not talking politics here. We are talking get right or get left when Jesus comes to take his church home. We still believe in the rapture of the church. So get right or get left. Repent or perish. Turn or burn. I'm not saying that to be funny. I'm saying that because that's what the Bible says. Paul goes on in verse 22. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, Isaiah 53, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Finding many texts in the book of Isaiah there. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, in other words, interrupting Paul, Paul, you are beside yourself. You, uh, much learning is driving you mad. In other words, he said, in effect, Paul, you're crazy. But Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. He speaks the word of truth and reason. I have a question for you. Why did Jesus come to this world? Of course, our answers are going to be pretty much the same, based upon what we know that Jesus came to do. Well, he came to die for our sins. He came to, you know, die for our sins and rise again from the dead and so on and so forth. Whoever believes in him would not perish. But do you know the words of Jesus 
As a matter of fact, I want to give you the right, just the right text. Go, go back to the, the Gospel of John. It's just the book right before the book of Acts. So I don't forget this, because last night I was kind of like having a senior moment last night. So, you know, I, I don't want that to happen again. But actually, it's in chapter 18 of John. So that you'll know what Jesus himself says of why he came. As he's standing before Pilate. And in verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. But notice this. For this cause I was born. Now notice. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world. That I should bear witness to the truth. Wow. That wasn't one of our answers, was it? Unless you just read John 18 today, this morning. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And as Christ bore witness of the truth, so the Apostle Paul is saying, I am telling you the truth because I am here to bear witness of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of God over sin and death. And I'm not mad. I'm glad. <laughs> and then he goes on to say in verse 26, going back to Paul, for the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. He says, there's the reason I'm not mad. The guy that's sitting before you that you invited here to hear me out, he believes these things too. Or at least he knows of them. Let's, let's put it that way. He says, uh, before whom I speak freely, knows these things. Speaking of the Scriptures. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention. Since, these, uh, since this thing was not done in a corner. What happened to me was not done in a corner. What happened to Jesus was not done in a corner. Everybody knew that there was somebody that was taken to a cross a few years earlier than this. And the talk was, of course, that he was buried, but three days later he rose again from the dead. And all of a sudden here is this movement. Days later, the Jews uh, that are following after Jesus are meeting in the temple. What happened in the temple? They began to, uh, first of all, in the upper room, the 120 received the Holy Spirit. Then they went forth and they went into the temple and began to preach Christ. 3,000 people came to the Lord that day. They baptized them all in the mikvahs around the, the, the city and the community there around the temple. It wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't done in, in, in some place to hide. It was out in the open and King Agrippa knew it. And that's what Paul is saying. Everything that needs to be known about Jesus has been said. It is being said and is continuing to be said. You cannot hide from it. He knows it. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. That's what Paul says here in verse 27. Uh, 27. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. What response came from that question or statement? Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. Missed it by that much. 
Now, when you miss it, you miss it. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might both become almost and altogether, such as I am, except for these chains. And I can just see Paul raise those chains. Except for these chains, I would that you would be like me. Because even with these chains, I'm free. I'm free from doubt. I'm free from sin. I'm free from guilt. I'm free from death. It seems that Paul never got to finish his sermon. Interrupted by Festus, told him he's going crazy. He retorts by turning to Agrippa for validation. The king knows these things. None of them have been hidden. To the Agrippa, he says, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And what's the reply? You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost persuade me. You know, it is debatable what and how Agrippa said uh, and how he said these words. What he said and how he said them. Because some believe that probably more like mocking Paul, he said, you'll have to do a lot more to make me a Christian. But many commentators believe that Agrippa was actually asking a question. And they've considered the text to say, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian in such a short time? But I want to tell you that I, I, I believe Paul's reply is really more important. To some extent, Agrippa is, is sealing his, his destiny. But what Paul says really reveals that heart of the evangelist. I would to God that not only you, King Agrippa, but also all who hear me today, Festus and everyone else, might become both almost and altogether such as I am, saved by the grace of Almighty God through faith in Jesus Christ, except for these chains. Except for these chains, I wish you could be like me, almost and altogether. You see, Paul was no almost Jew and he was no almost Christian. Paul wanted all of them to have the same blessed hope that he had. He had a blessed hope that Jesus Christ was going to come again and restore the nation of Israel and establish his millennial kingdom. He had that hope then. We have that hope today as believers in Jesus Christ. The last part of this chapter says, when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free 
if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now, remember, it's Agrippa saying that to Festus. That in no way is giving us any understanding of what God meant by all that took place. Because remember that Paul's heart was to go to Rome. Why? Because Jesus had told him at night, Paul, what you have done in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, I bless you for, but you're not done. I want you to testify of me in Rome. So Paul knew that he was going to go to Rome, but he didn't know how he was going to get there. Well, the trial was God's means of getting him there. This is all part of how God is working. The Jews would have killed Paul, so he didn't go back to Jerusalem, and and the Lord made sure of that. But the Romans helped him to fulfill God's will. And I believe that God's will was that Paul go to Jerusalem, that go through all of these troubles and trials that he's gone through to eventually get to Rome and stay, as it were, in chains. But Paul wasn't worried about the chains. He could hold those chains up to these people and say, except for these chains, I wish you were just like me because I'm free in Christ. I've been set free from the bondage of sin and death because of what Jesus Christ did for me. I'm free to be obedient to Jesus today. And if I have to bear these chains with me, I will do so until the very end. So chains mean nothing when it comes to serving the Lord Jesus Christ for Paul. And he goes on, and we'll see as we get into chapter 27 and 28. What a glorious story. What a glorious biography. What a glorious account of an apostle whose heart was completely given to Jesus Christ. And so the question remains for us today. Are you an almost Christian? Or are you an altogether Christian? Are you altogether in your knowledge of Christ? Are you all together in your love for the Word of God? Are you all together in your love for people who need to know Jesus Christ? Are you all together and filled with the Holy Spirit that God may use you in ways that you've never thought of before? That God can take you, mold you, shape you into the image that He wants you to be so that you can be the light, the salt, the testimony, the witness for the glory of Jesus Christ. Has your life been changed? Maybe a a, a bright light from heaven didn't knock you down. And maybe a voice didn't speak to you audibly. But God changed your life. And if God changed your life, then you are an altogether Christian. Now, be an altogether Christian. And then let's all together serve the Lord until He comes again. Let's pray.